are you feeling jolly? Megan, I am so jolly. It was hard for oh, me to oh, tell. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> your face was um, not matching up with your words, but it's it's good to see your face, Mike. You too, Megan. Digitally, oh, of course. Yeah. I know. It's that time of year. It's a, it's chilly outside. There's a little bit of snow on the ground. My little baby prairie plants at my house are just poking through, and I love how they look all dusted with snow. It's just a magical oh, cool. time of year. Allison was listening to some holiday music <laughs> last night, and and I am gradually getting into the mood here. Yeah. I know. It's always There's always so many fun things to celebrate, and I love all the different ways that people celebrate all around the world. And that's something that's really special too. just that diversity of perspectives and traditions. Yeah. It's wonderful. One tradition that does not change on this podcast because it's the Prairie Pod is celebrating Prairie. You don't need a special time <laughs> of year to do it. You can do it now. You can do it tomorrow. You can do it every day into the future. And so while it has definitely Absolutely. been a year, it's been a year, right, Mike? It's been a year. It's 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 been a dumpster fire of a year, <laughs> as the people have said. Yeah. Yeah, that's what people have said. But there's been a lot of good things too, and we hope that as we bring you these stories from the field, you're gonna hear the magic that is prairie, the healing power of nature, and all of the good things that can help bring you back to that state of cheer. What a year we've had together. It's easy with all the stress swirling around us to forget what we have right in front of us. Through all the ups and downs, twists and turns, and unexpected events, we are part of a carefully woven fabric, more intricate and complex than any man-made fiber, woven to include millions of parts and pieces that connect us today just as they have through all the years before us. The natural world is not separate from us. It is our world, our one and only, and it's right here with us every day, offering support, constancy in times of change, discovery like nothing else, and the promise of the sun rising and setting tomorrow. The Minnesota Prairie is a legacy that connects us through the sounds, sights, smells, and memories for all who are lucky enough to stop and take notice. This year, we offer you the power of prairie in the voices you'll hear today. We hope you'll laugh, cry, and lose yourself for a little while in the stories of what prairie offers us, the power to make us whole again. My name is Sarah Reagan. I am a farm bill biologist for Pheasants Forever in Lacparo County. I have been working there since March of 2018. My story in April of this year, springtime, normal stuff we all go through. We're sick of the mud, sick of the snow, ready for some green grass, ready for some beautiful flowers. So um, I was on the hunt and hoping to see some past flowers. I had never seen them before. So I asked a coworker who's been working in Lacaparo for many years, where in the county they might be if he had seen them before. And he told me about a remnant pasture that had south-facing slopes um, that had, over the years, he had seen covered in pasque flowers. So I made a lot of excuses on my field checks to wander to that part of the county, um, which I had to be doing a lot because the workload load was pretty heavy this year. Um, and at the time, I was five months pregnant. So knowing that I was going to have to be going on maternity leave, I wanted to get all my work done as much as I could. So I was kind of feeling the stress at work, even in April. Um, so I was checking like twice a week, every week for the whole month. And end of April came and I had seen nothing, no luck at all. So I had kind of given up and thought, well, maybe next year it'll work out better. So. Um, 
as far as home life, it was also a little bit stressful. My other son, who was about a year and a half old, was having a lovely growth spurt and his big molars were coming in. Um, so he was a little grumpy to say the least. Um, and I wasn't sleeping a ton because of the pregnancy and everything. So um, one evening after I picked him up from daycare, he'd been pretty much fussy, crying, frustrated the whole time since we got home. Um, my husband, who was a farmer, was in full planting mode, hadn't seen him in days. He called me up and asked me if I could deliver him a supper. So I said, of course I will, but I'm not bringing this kid with me because he's not having a good time. I didn't even want to try to fight him to put him in the car seat. So my mom came over to watch him, um, which I felt kind of guilty about because she wasn't going to have a fun time playing with this tearful baby. Um, so I wanted to get it done as fast as I could, bring my husband a supper and then get back home. So got everything ready, drove out to the field he was in, down a few gravel roads, um, wait for the tractor to make another round, dropped off a meal, gave him a quick hug, and then I was ready to go back home. So I had parked by the side of the road on a gravel road. There's crop fields on both sides, turned my car around, and out of the corner of my eye, in the field of brome at the top of the ditch, 10 little white flowers just growing there. Of course, I had to get out and see what they were, and there were the past flowers that I had been looking for and hoping for and given up hope on. So it was a really nice moment to remind me, quit stressing out about all this dumb stuff that's going to go away eventually, and a nice little reminder that the prairie will be there in the places that you least expect it, because I was not thinking they'd be at the top of a road ditch next to a cornfield. So it was just a nice little blessing and nice little, finally, my moment where I got to see them. So I got another one checked off my list, too. I love awesome. that. That's so beautiful. That the prairie is also kind of tells you, you know, the land is speaking to you, telling you what it was before, which I love. It's like, look, mm -hmm. we used to be prairie here. Check us out. Yeah, I'm very um, I feel like I should have put a flag down because I'm going to go check it now every year to sure. see <laughs> see if they keep coming back. After we got done recording, Sarah said that it was a needed day and it was uplifting for sure. I love this idea that prairie will be there when you least expect it, where you least expect it. This is this is a theme we heard from a lot of our guests this year, and you'll hear this again as U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologist Becky Esser tells us about an unexpected hill prairie discovery in northwest Minnesota. The phrase of the day is, holy blue grandma! Would you look at that? My name is Becky Esser. I'm a wildlife biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I'm stationed at the Detroit Lakes Wetland Management District in northwest central Minnesota. Um, so today I'm going to talk to you just about one of my few field days that I had this season. Um, you know, like, like most of us in conservation, my field days were few and far between. So when I had the opportunity to go out one of these days, I really packed in my schedule. I mean, I scheduled my time. I scheduled like four or five field stops. I was going to go back. It was late September already, but I was going to go back and take a look at a couple of our grazing units. Um, and I was going to do some, some meandering of, uh, meandering and monitoring of our native prairies just to see how they responded a couple years post-grazing. And I was going to also check some of the seedings there because we're trying to intercede and, and trample um, those seeds in using uh, bison and, and uh, cattle. And so I uh, had big, big plans. And I got to my first spot, and it's in the very southwestern part of Becker County. And, of course, like you all know, when we get on to prairies, you know, I didn't just wrap this up in an hour or so. I was out there for quite a while. So I got this site done, and it was already closing in on lunch, and I'm already seeing that. There's no way I'm going to get this schedule um, uh, figured out so or everything finished. And, of course, my stomach was growling, so I decided to detour to a place for a quick lunch, and it happened to be a new acquisition that we had just purchased for the Northern Tallgrass Prairie National Wildlife Refuge, and it was just a few miles away. Um, I had never been there 
But this summer, a coworker of mine had visited and sent me pictures and described this these hillsides of blanket flower and local weed. And I'm like, okay, I know I'm not going to see the blanket flower and local weed in in bloom, but I got to see this, and it's lunchtime, so I'll I'll take a detour. So I I I went there and uh, I visited Coot Landing for the first time. Um, Coot Landing doesn't exactly invoke picturesque prairie <laughs> but that's its name and uh, so I had a quick lunch in the truck and then I decided to go take a quick walk right quick walk and uh, see what I could see well I wandered for about 30 to 45 minutes just jotting down species and I still you know it, w it was good but I'm like this this is not it I got to find out where this um, this great prairie is and so I texted my coworker, and I'm like can you can you navigate you know get me get me a little closer so he sent me uh, a point on Google Maps and I was quite a ways away I mean it's only an 80 acre prairie but for whatever reason I was still <laughs> I was still in the front 40 <laughs> and uh, I wandered and wandered and I started cresting some hills and and mind you this is southeast Clay County so this isn't flat Agassiz Beach Ridge Prairie this is topography this is oak draws oak woodlands and savannas beautiful hill prairies and deep shallow marshes and and lakes and I crested this hill and in front of me I was in awe I saw this even taller hill for for starters but I knew I was getting closer because I could see the change in vegetation. I could see the colors starting to come out even in September, you know, that beautiful golden and red hue that we see in, in September prairies. And uh, so I knew I was getting closer and I kept pushing towards that point. And uh, when I got there, I could not believe my eyes. I got to the top of the hill and the vista was incredible. And I started texting my coworker and I'm like, you know, I'm, I see a little bit more little blue stem and I saw more porcupine grass and I started running into echinacea here and there, needle and thread. And then finally I texted and I'm like, I'm like, holy blue grandma. And I knew I was there. And he's like, you found it, didn't you? And I, I definitely found it. So things started getting a little cheesy from then on because when you know you found a special spot you got to share it with somebody right i mean i took it all in um for myself but i did a group text to the management staff at our our office which is about five or six people and i started using words like this is amazing and spectacular and this place is special and you know, this is one of the best dry prairies I've ever seen in my life. And they knew I was excited because they started sending these gift photos back of all these babies or these little kids, you know, with their hands in their <laughs> air. Like it was a Rocky moment, you know, from Rocky Moon, the movie. And uh, it, it, it got pretty cheesy, but they knew I was excited. And uh, let's just say... I never made it to the rest of my planned sites for that day. I spent the rest of the afternoon at this prairie. But I'll tell you what, after the year that we've all had, you know, um, it, it just really kind of struck me how much I needed that day out on the prairie and how I needed that time to myself. And uh, it, it just it really was good for the soul and it just really spoke to me how much we need to get out and have those days for ourselves. So that was one of my very few field days this season, but it was so well worth it. And I never did see a coot on coot landing, but it certainly <laughs> the prairie that, that, uh, that was there was definitely worth it. That's a great story, Becky. <laughs> Holy blue grandma. I, that, that's going to become a trend. You're going to be hearing that on the street sometime soon. Uh, certainly Megan and I are going to be using it. So thanks for that, Becky. You know, I loved how she highlighted that, you know, she needed that experience and, and how it was good for the soul. And it, it, to me, it really reinforces that we, we need those kinds of moments to help keep us passionate about the work we do to conserve prairies. We need those moments. and. Here's another one, another prime example of that kind of moment as told by Carol Hall. 
My name is Carol Hall. I work with the Minnesota DNR in a program called the Minnesota Biological Survey. The Minnesota Biological Survey works to identify and protect Minnesota's biological diversity. And I work out of the St. Paul office, but I travel around the state a lot doing amphibian and reptile surveys, searching for frogs and salamanders, snakes, lizards, and turtles. And uh, very thankful have been to have been approved to conduct field work during this past five to six months. Um, and really, how awesome is it to have a job that requires you to go outside and work hard? <laughs> so much uh, of my field work in 2020 involved turtles in southeastern Minnesota in riverine habitats. But I did make a trip to the southwestern Minnesota prairies of the Minnesota River Valley. And, uh, and with me came a bull snake, a species of special concern in Minnesota due in part to the loss of prairie and savanna habitats needed by this wide roaming species. But I wasn't just bringing him along for the ride. I was bringing him home. The snake had been found the previous summer by Nick Schultz, who was tracking bull snakes that had been surgically implanted with transmitters so that we could track them and learn about their movements and habitat use throughout the site. And you can learn more about this project in episode five of season two. And for those diehard Prairie podcast fans that have listened to every episode, you may recall that we were tracking 10 bull snakes at this site at one time. And in 2019, Nick was out collecting some final locations for the few remaining snakes that we still had on air when he encountered this really sad looking fellow. The snake he found was an adult. It was over four feet in length, but it clearly had a problem. <laughs> the scales on its head were raised and, and crusty. His eye caps or the scale that covers his eyes, um, they were cloudy and, and he couldn't see. He was weak and thin. It was, uh, it was possible that the unusual growth on his scales was due to uh, snake fungal disease, uh, SFD for short. It's an emerging disease, emerging infectious disease that has the potential to significantly impact local snake populations. <clears throat> and uh, a vet at the Minnesota Zoo, Dr. Uh, Lawner, put the snake under an anesthesia at her lab in Apple Valley and collected a biopsy that was sent to the National Wildlife Health Lab in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Fortunately, that test result was negative. Um, there was fungus impacting the snake scales, but it was not SFD. But there was a lot of recovery needed before he could be returned to his home territory. Uh, by late September, when the snakes are thinking about going underground for a long winter's nap, it was determined that he was not ready to go back yet. So it was decided that he would remain in the care of the Minnesota Zoo, and I would release him first thing in the spring. And then what happened? COVID hit and all plans went out the window. Uh, I finally had time to return him this past July, uh, roughly a year after he had been initially found. And Dr. Lahner assured me that his eyes were functioning and he was ready. Uh, zoo staff warned me that he'd retained or recovered, <laughs> I guess, his wild, aggressive nature. And I figured, oh, that's a good thing, since, you know, it would serve him well going back into the prairie. Well, I combined his release with a trip to Blue Mound State Park in southwest Minnesota. 
And I camped at the park and was planning to meet park staff first thing in the morning. Um, I arrived at our meeting spot early. The sun was out and it was a beautiful morning. And I thought, as I sat there, I bet that snake would like to come out and enjoy a little sunshine after being in captivity for a year. So I reached into the cooler where he was secure in a snake bag. And I opened the bag. And right away, the hissing started. I opened the bag wide enough so I could tell which end was which. And I grabbed him behind his head. He struggled and hissed and thrashed about trying to get free. But I held firm, even wrapped his body around my arm and squeezed as constrictors will do. Bull snakes being a constrictor. I sat quietly with him until he finally realized I wasn't going to eat him. And after a few minutes, I loosened my grasp, and he didn't move. We quietly sat in the sun together, and he slowly stretched out onto my arm and let the sun shine onto his beautiful snake body and uh, not-so-pretty head. <laughs> I don't know how long he stayed there without moving, but I managed to take several pictures of him with my other arm. And from the first to the last photo was a 10-minute period. So he was probably there about 15 minutes just basking on my arm. And it was a joy to watch him. My colleagues arrived and I returned the snake to the bag and in the cooler. And later that day, I drove up to the Minnesota River Valley and released him where I knew he'd find a burrow for protection. He didn't waste any time finding it and disappeared shortly after I released him. Hopefully, he had a, a good remaining part of the summer back on his home territory and uh, is now safe in a deep burrow where he's overwintering. So that's my holiday story. And don't you just love happy endings? <laughs> I do love happy endings. That was beautiful. Mm. I have mm. to ask you, because, um, mm -hmm. you know, I asked you this earlier, but I'm going to ask you it so everybody can hear, all the listeners can hear. So mm. my Uncle Bob um, is a sea turtle biologist, and he mm. used to collect turtles and other animals on the side of the road for necropsy. And he'd stick them in the mm -hmm. freezer till he was ready to, you know, analyze the cause of death and, and figure out more. And so my aunt would always go in there and there'd just be like ice cream and dead animals like right, right next to each other. And so I'm just curious, when the snake was in your cooler, you know, what's your comfort level as a scientist? Are there grapes in there? You got a sandwich in there next to him? What's, what's going on in that no. cooler? I think if things are well contained, I don't mind mixing it up a little bit, you know, especially with the snake in a snake bag. It, you know, it wasn't going to be too um, all over my food. Um, as I recall, I might have had another cooler just for food. But <laughs> coolers do, because coolers can latch and um, and be locked up, you know, it's, it's, uh, they can be uh, good little carrying, um, boxes containers a safe for, place for, for, your, for your snakes and mm -hmm. your snacks yeah. is what we like to say <laughs> ah there you go nothing better than releasing a healthy animal back into the wild you know where it can just be its own wild self that i, I love that story and carol that uh, just nice job and i think that's just a prime example of of uh the kind of experience you know a hands-on very emotional experience that really motivates us uh, to care about these creatures and conserve their habitat. It makes me want to work hard to do that. The next story by Jamie Edwards um, is an is a excellent example of, of how we can always rely on prairie to surprise us and, and keep us on our toes and just make, life, make our life more interesting. My name is Jamie Edwards. I am currently the wildlife manager at Whitewater Wildlife Management Area, but was the non-game specialist for Southeast Minnesota for about 18 years. And the story I'm going to tell is when I was the non-game specialist working on Bluff Prairies. 
we had just started doing goat grazing on the bluff prairies to try to set back buckthorn. And so as part of this, we were required to do some monitoring to, to see if the goats are having a negative impact um, on the prairie plants. And, and aside from we want them to have a negative impact on the buckthorn, but were they having a detrimental effect on the prairie as well? And so we go out, and these goats are quite friendly, and uh, basically our gloves, I was out with my coworker, Barb Perry, um, and we were checking the site. So as part of this monitoring, we had set up these um, quadrants, and so when we marked them with PVC pipe, and so we're out trying to search for these quadrants to go and and do our plant surveys, and these goats are just following us all over, and they're chewing on our gloves, and they're eating our data sheets, and they're just a lot friendlier than we thought. And so, and we're also trying to keep an eye out for rattlesnakes because there's rattlesnakes on this site. And so, um, and one of the concerns we had, because people kept bringing this up, is like, what if the goats get bit by rattlesnakes? We're like, oh, that's not going to happen. They've evolved with rattlesnakes. It's perfect. They, It'll be fine. And so we're out on the site, and Barb and I are kind of towards the top of this bluff, and we look down, and we're like, there's a goat down there. It looks dead. And so we're like, what do we do? Because all the other goats are following us, so surely this one's dead. And so um, so we're like, oh, what if it was bit by a rattlesnake? And so we were like paralyzed standing here looking at this thing. And finally, we're like, I guess we should go check it out. And so here we go with the herd of goats following behind us, going down. And we've got our snake sticks, which are like golf golf clubs with the club off. And now it's got a hook on the end. And uh, and we're walking by all this, this beautiful prairie that's got buckthorn growing up to it. And we get to this goat who's just sprawled out on this rock. And we're like, holy moly. And it's like the biggest goat in the herd. And we're standing there, and I poke it with a with a snake stick, and, and nothing happens. And so I'm like, "Well, we gotta call this contractor and tell them their goat died." And, and it's like, I "Wonder out when when it, when it died? Do you see any bite marks? You know, and it's, it's not swollen or anything." And we're standing there talking, and uh, all of a sudden the thing just jumps up and it just looks at us like, and it was just, it's just sleeping there. I'm like, "What the heck?" <laughs> and, and it just just turns around and looks at us, mm. and he starts chewing on our dish. <laughs> 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 it, was, it was like we're like, are we mad at this goat for for like pulling the wool over our eyes? Or are we happy that it's alive? <laughs> <laughs> so so we decided that we were happy it was alive, and and we carried on with our with our survey, and it followed us along with the rest of the goats. <laughs> That's awesome. That is I'll, an excellent story. I'll say that uh, the probably my, my favorite day in the field ever was probably the first day I worked with goats. Yeah. So <laughs> funny and entertaining and just. Yeah. Oh, man, goats. Excellent management tool, especially for those steep hill slopes that Jamie's describing. But sometimes a sneaky, creepy critter. <laughs> You never know what's going to happen in the field. I love that the one goat dared to be different. And I also love that when it jumped up, it was like, I'm going to eat your data sheet. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Speaking of data sheets, I love that Jamie was writing everything down that she was doing. I know you thought you were going to escape hearing it, but here you're hearing it again. It's so important to write these things down. Up next, we're going to hear from John Latimer who, in addition to his many accomplishments, he is somebody that I really see as doing life right. When he is talking to us about the natural world, you can just hear the joy and excitement in his voice. He's so happy to share his experiences, and he's somebody who, for the last 40-plus years, have been tracking the phenology of where he lives. So what do I mean by phenology? He's tracking basically what's happening to the natural world. When did the tamaracks put on bud? When did they go to seed? When did the first birds start arriving back from spring? All of those seasonal changes, he's tracking when that happens. And like he says, the only difference between him and a naturalist is that a phenologist writes it down. (laughs) 
He also shared with us a story about not eating data sheets, like in Jamie's story, but a story about how the number one question that he's still asked when he goes to school kids and he's teaching them about tracking these seasonal changes, because anyone can do it. It's for everyone. You can do this. All you need is a notebook, a pencil, and a will to discover. So he said the number one question that he keeps getting asked is, can I eat this? Can I eat this? Can I eat this? Is this edible? Is this edible? (laughs) And I empathize with him on that fact because whenever we do prairie trainings, that's still the number one question that I am asked also. We hope you enjoy, listen, and experience the seasonal change of the world through John's eyes. My name is John Latimer, and I do a program in Grand Rapids, Minnesota on KAXE radio called The Phenology Show. And every week, I make an effort to catalog the things that I've seen that have changed over that week and to tell people that these are the things that they ought to be looking for. And I try to keep it current. At the same time, I try to incorporate some of the things that happened in past years so that they can get a a sort of a chronological uh, or or a feeling for climate. Whatever time of year it is, I want people to be aware of their circumstance and to be uh, attuned to nature. And it might, you know, we're coming into a time of year when it's probably going to be a lot of talk about the kind of birds that you're likely to see and the phases of the moon and uh, the types of clouds that come along in the wintertime and those sorts of things. But, you know, uh, eventually we'll run around to spring again and we'll talk about the returning robins and the emerging flowers on the speckled alders and uh, so forth. So that's a bit of what I do. John, tell us a little bit about how you came to love phenology and just love nature and all mm-hmm. like like, how did that come about? You were telling us earlier about your mail route. Yeah, well, you know, to go way back, my mother was a farm girl from Red Wing, and my father was a, a he he graduated the University of Minnesota and became a forester, and that was in uh, 1940, I think he graduated from the U, 41, um, and he was a forester, and so as a child, I knew the names of the trees being a forester he he didn't give a whip for anything that didn't grow up and produce wood it was just (laughs) not part of his world Mm -hmm. but uh he he did instill in me a knowledge of all the trees and i just assumed everybody had that knowledge i just assumed everybody knew that the that the white spruce looked like a white spruce and the balsam looked like a balsam and the difference was pretty obvious and I was sort of disabused of that notion somewhere along the line. But at any rate, I had this background and my brothers and sisters, I have six brothers and sisters and they were total six. I don't have six brothers and six sisters. <laughs> it would be okay if you did. And two brothers. <laughs> um, but they were, uh, they were always criticized, not criticizing. They always teased me because I just had an eye for detail. We'd be driving down the road and I would be like, oh, look at that hawk over there sitting in that oak tree, you know, and it just, I just saw things. I mean, just one example. I went to see my dentist whom I see like maybe once a year. This is years and years ago. <laughs> I sat down in the chair and he's just about to start working on me. And I go, you got new glasses. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, you know, I've had these for a month and my wife hasn't noticed yet. <laughs> but at some point, I I took a job with the U.S. Postal Service and I was lucky enough to be a rural carrier. And those of you who are rural carriers know why I say lucky enough. Um, it's a great job. You You go in, you search your mail, you load your mail in your car. And then you drive away, and for, like, for me, it was a five-hour route. I had 100 miles, so I drove for five hours by myself. I got to do exactly what I wanted to do besides stick mail in mailboxes. And somewhere along the line, I met a woman early on who happened to remark to me one day at the mailbox that she thought she had seen her first robin of the year. And so, obviously, it was probably in the springtime. 
And after that, I, I, I kind of got to thinking about that. You know, maybe I, I, I don't recall seeing a robin, but I, I bet there are some around. Anyway, I, I started looking, and I started meeting with her once a week. I brought her mail up to her house once a week. She had a lovely place on a beautiful lake and lots of nature around all the time. And I would bring her, bring her mail to the house, and we would have coffee. And some days it was a half hour. Some days it was an hour. It didn't matter. I just, you know, it was my time. And I would just talk to her. And, and she bought me a couple of books on, on nature, some of the Stokes guides for, uh, you know, tracking and winter and birds and bird behavior and just sort of gave me this nudge. She was actually probably my mentor. And after that, somewhere in about October of 83, I started keeping records of what I was seeing. And it started off pretty rough because I didn't know anything. I mean, I had I I I have maybe a dozen different books on flower identification. And ultimately, I settled on Newcombs because it was the one that got me most often to uh, at least close. <laughs> uh, by the time I got it narrowed down on Newcombs, I knew I was looking for a plant that had alternate leaves and toothed edges and, and five parts per, per petal. You know, it got me close. And so I took Newcombs with me. I've got a battered copy of Newcombs in my car that I've had with me since the early 80s. I have highlighted every plant that I have found in Itasca County, and I have now lists of adjacent counties of plants that I have found. And so I know when I go in my book, if I find a plant that I don't recognize, I, I can kind of tell, you know, A, if I've seen it before, or B, if it's native to the county. So uh, I began just keeping these records, and then about that same time, I began to volunteer on KAXE Radio as a morning host and in those days there was no morning news program so we would rip the news off of the teletype machine back in the closet and we'd read the news and then we had time to either play music or talk and and I began talking about phenology what I was seeing and the response was immediate and overwhelming people loved it but the word phenology had no, I mean, it was like nobody even knew what it was. So I started coming up with a definition and talking about phenology and just getting people interested in what's happening outside. I didn't have any formal training, but you can, if you start in your yard, you can learn the trees and then you can follow the trees and you can learn the, you can learn the plants. You can do it on your garden. You can do it when the carrots come up or when the beets are, you know, whatever. It just, it can be anything as long as it's something you do yearly and you keep track of it, you know, it, it's, it becomes uh, phenology. And all of those records are valuable. Anybody who has any sort of records at all, they are unbelievably valuable records. And, and any day that you start doing phenology is a good day. And if you can keep it up, that's all for the for the good one thing i took away from john's story is the importance of paying attention you know i, I think of prairie kind of like fine art if you're observing it carefully it pays big dividends and those observations can be you know in prairie they can be in a number of, of activities you could be uh collecting wildlife and plant data like john does you could be uh, hunting you could be yeah, you know, doing photography or some other kind of art form, whatever. It, the, the important thing is that you're making those observations and then you're recording them in some manner. And that information can help us conserve prairie, certainly. It also will make you more present while you're there. It'll connect you to the prairie and, and enhance your experience there. Our next story comes from George Schur. George has deep prairie roots, if you'll pardon the metaphor. He spent much of his life on prairie. He writes a blog about it. Uh, George is going to tell us a story about the prairie and the stream on his land and the lessons he's learned from them.
My name is uh, George Schur, and I'm down in extreme southwestern Minnesota. About 20 years ago, my wife and I moved back to the family farm along a prairie stream down here. I took early require, uh, retirement as a geologist from a career at teaching at a college in the woods in central Minnesota and from doing summer field work out on the short grass prairie in the northern Great Plains. But now we're living in the tall grass prairie. We were both raised in this farming community and looked forward to reconnecting with family and friends. We knew that agriculture had changed a lot in the 30 years that we were gone, and it took some time to get used to the new ag practices. But I had not anticipated the lessons that the land itself would reveal about the history of the tall grass prairie. To share four of those stories with you that go progressively farther back into deep time, and they're based on posts that are available in LoneTreeFarm.blog, no spaces and no capitals. Seasons change and we mark those changes with holidays. Winter, spring, summer, and fall all flow through the modern working landscape in just the same way as the seasonal rounds made their way through the tall grass prairie in the past. We move cattle from paddocks on the floodplain to graze cover crops and corn stalks up on the surrounding uplands. Corn and soybeans have been combined. And that's similar to what the Native Americans did in their fall harvest to their cornfields and gardens and to the processing of bison for winter supplies. However, all of that activity depends on the weather. This fall was dry, but we had record rainfalls during the past two years. All of that extra water brought the pasture creek up to uh, prolonged high flow conditions, and that produced a lot of erosion along the high channel banks. When the water levels dropped, there were treasures of artifacts and bones to collect on the sandbars. Generations change and we celebrate with baptisms, confirmations, weddings, and funerals. Over the past 150 years since the farm was homesteaded, six generations of our family have shared those celebrations. Our grandchildren continue the family tradition of looking for adventures along the pasture creek. Prior to the last few years, only a couple arrowheads and one bison horn had been picked up by the kids of previous generations. But the recent high water changed all that. In the last few years, three complete bison skulls and six individual horns have washed out of the high channel banks. In addition, dozens of possible prehistoric corn cobs have been deposited on sandbars. The grandkids have found some great artifacts, including six different kinds of arrowheads, two large leaf-shaped blades, probably knife blades of some sort, made of a distinctive gray rock, and two pieces of pottery. This wealth of cultural resources probably got liberated from underground storage pits when the record high waters eroded the channel banks of the prairie pasture creek. Cultures changed, and we should acknowledge those changes with respect and tolerance. These days, people travel to other countries to experience different cultures and language, but the tall grass prairie has traditionally hosted multiple diverse Amer Native American communities. The people who lived along our pasture creek probably raised corn and hunted bison about a thousand years ago. At least that's what a friend who is an archaeologist has suggested after identifying the pieces of pottery. Another archaeologist has conducted a geophysical mapping survey that reinforces those ideas. She interprets her data to suggest that there was at least one dwelling and multiple underground cache pits associated with circular vegetation anomalies that we can see right now on the flat floodplain. In addition, she speculates that this is a multi-component site because of the different types of arrowheads. That means over multiple centuries, several different Native American cultural groups lived along our pasture creek. Or maybe they were just passing through because this stream valley would have provided a natural travel route. It is one of several that originally formed when there was a glacier in southwestern Minnesota. Environments change, and we know that some changes are natural cycles, while others are the result of pollution. The advance and retreat of glaciers thousands of years ago are not are, are natural cycles, but the climate change that gave us record rainfalls in the last few years aren't.
About 10,000 years ago, the margin of the last ice sheet came to within about 20 miles of our farm. Meltwater from that glacier flowed to the southwest and carved the valley where our pasture creek is now located. There were earlier ice sheets that moved through the area and had deposited sediments, but it is this last glacier that is our creek valley. The tooth of an ice age animal has washed out of the eroding creek banks in a manner similar to the artifacts and the bones that are much younger. A scientist at the math at the MEMA site in Hot Springs, South Dakota, has verified that the molar came from a mammoth. So the increased erosion due to modern climate change has exposed a fossil that documents an environment that is completely different than the tall grass prairie that we now live in. The lessons we can learn from the land are like prayers. Sometimes they don't directly answer the questions that we ask, and sometimes we're surprised to learn something that we haven't even asked about. However, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. This holiday season, I'm grateful for the privilege of living on the prairie and learning from the land. George has this fantastic way of making the past make sense in the present. How the land was shaped, how it's changed through time, and how there's still so much to uncover about its secrets. I love that he described these lessons like prayers, where the answer isn't always what you thought it would be. It never ceases to amaze me how powerful prairie is. This land connects us through smells, sights, and memories. And you're going to hear more of that. Up next in our last story of the day, Upper Sioux Agency State Park Manager Emily Alban tells this story of prairie legacy that's been passed down from her father to her and now to her two girls. The way she tells this story brought me to tears. I'm not ashamed to say it. I cried. I had two big old tears rolling down my face. Because this is why prairie is so important, because it connects us through time through hardship, through joy, through frustration, through sadness, it is there as a pivotal piece to tie together boundless memories. Listen as Emily shares her passion for prairie and how it can help you remember the joy of discovery and a connection to the past. Howdy, I'm Emily Alban, uh, the Assistant Park Supervisor at Upper Sioux Agency State Park might be the best park in the state, but I could be slightly biased. Um, I have, I always joke that I have 30 years of experience. I'll be 36 here shortly. Um, and that is because uh, I'm, a, I'm a DNR brat. You know, there's that term military brat. Well, I'm a DNR brat. I grew up in the state park system. My dad, Randy Lorenzen, was uh, an assistant manager in the state park system for over 30 years. He ended his career with over 20 years at William O'Brien State Park. So I grew up in the park shadowing him, following him around. And when you're a DNR kid, um, you don't get sent to summer camp. You, you follow mom and dad to work. And in my case, while other kids were out swimming and, and doing fun stuff at camp, I was having porcupine grass wars with my dad and learning how to say the word pacoon and how to identify prairie plants. Um, a lot of what you see at William O'Brien was, uh, was started by him well over 20 years ago. We moved there in 1990. And um, at one point in my life, I he had me so well trained that doing 55 a, on a, on a highway, I could go past a prairie plot and, and easily identify 15, 20 plants without even trying. And he was pretty proud of that, I think. Um, and that got me thinking this year. You know, Megan, you asked me to reflect on, on my field season. And, I, you know, this year, like a lot of people, I didn't really have much of a field season. I didn't get out into the prairie very often. And when I did, it was more of an escape for me. Um, and it brought back a lot of those memories of being a kid. And I would bring my girls out with me too. I have a seven and a five-year-old and teaching them the flowers. And I realized I was introducing them to my favorite plants that had smells to them, just like my dad did with me all those years ago. 
um, uh, anise hyssop with that licorice smell and uh, gray-headed coneflower with that amazing smell and monarda. Um, I think my favorite part uh, we have is is them finding a new smell and running up to show me and then getting to teach them what that plant was. So I guess what I would like to put out there is that the flowers aren't just pretty. Um, you know, kids see flowers every day. It's that that scent, get the aromatherapy of it, I think. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. It's those smells brought me back to my childhood, and I'm very excited for the fact that my daughters will hopefully have that smell factor with them. So next time you find yourself near a prairie or you have a special moment near a prairie, crush one of those flowers and, and you get that smell, and it'll, it'll help bring you back next time. Those are such good stories. Those are great stories. You know, the, the reason I love this this uh, holiday episode with these stories from the field, I was thinking about how our jobs now, you know, we, we spend most of it really sitting in front of the computer. And so our time in the field, which means so much to us, we've, we've really got to cherish that time and make the most of it. And, you know, I don't have to tell you this, but, you know, that's when we learn. Uh, I mean, I suppose we learn something sitting in front of the computer, but... <laughs> in the field is when we're learning and I feel like when we're really doing our best work. And so I had I, one of my, um, one of the folks I used to work with used to always say that conservation happens in the field, happens outside, not behind a desk. And while definitely the work that we do in the office is certainly important and valuable, yeah. I think those experiences outside in nature with each other, they, they just feed the soul. And it's a beautiful thing to spend that time in nature. And we heard that from all of our guests. And I just, what I love about it is it's the partnership, right? It's the partnership right. that we're all doing this together. And we have different ways that we're accomplishing these goals of keeping prairie on the landscape for future generations. But I love that we're all in this together and just hearing people talk about how prairie brought them peace, how it brought them joy, how it brought them that moment of hope that they needed throughout the year. It just, it's exactly what I needed to hear. I want to go out there this winter. I'm not going to wait for spring, Megan. I'm going to get out there this winter and tromp through the snow in the prairie. You got your boots, you got your hat, you got your mittens. You're ready to go. <laughs> I don't have mittens, uh, but yeah. Oh, well, all right. You got gloves. Okay, fine. Yeah, you have we'll, some manly gloves, whatever. <laughs> Got some hand coverings she can yeah, wear. Yeah, we're together, socially distanced, of course. Um, and we look for an excuse, okay, Megan? All right. This sounds great. We're going to go out. Mike and I are going to frolic, and we encourage you to go outside <laughs> and frolic, too. The prairie is beautiful right now. All of those grasses lodged with snow. It's a quiet, peaceful time of year. We wish you a safe, peaceful, and hopeful holiday season. And we hope that you get to spend that time out in the prairie, on the prairie, just enjoying all that it has to offer. Are you ready, Mike? Happy holidays, everybody. Oh, my gosh. We're supposed to do this on three. Happy New Year! Okay, let's try this. One, two, three. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! We're so great at this. I'm really proud of us. High five. High five. <laughs>